Hey everyone, welcome to episode four of the Ikigai Project. My name's Peter. You got Mark here. And we are recording. Uh, once again, this is probably around our halfway point of the season. We're in episode four. Hope you've been enjoying all the interviews and conversations that we've been having. We're taking a little bit of a break in this one um, and just having a bit of a conversation between the two of us and catching up, sharing a little bit about us. Um, there's been a lot of feedback and questions on, well, who's this Peter guy and who's Mark? And we'd love to share a little bit more about you know who we are, what we've been doing, what we're planning on doing, and uh, give you a bit more context here. So, Mark, any thoughts so far on uh, on on anything I just shared or podcast? Yeah, no, I think you touched on it really well there. We wanted to also keep the transitions theme going, so some of the topics that we're going to talk about are related to this season long conversation around transition. And um, yeah, like you said, the feedback that we've been getting has been really wonderful to hear so far. Some of it really positive, some of it constructive, which helps us. And um, one of the one of the pieces, especially from the first episode, if you had a chance to listen, was, you know, we covered a lot of ground, but maybe there's an opportunity to go deeper. So I think, you know, today our intent is to find some of those topics and still uh, provide some variety, but, but go deeper. Um, yeah, sounds good. So before we get into to some of those topics, I'm curious, Mark, you're you're taking the seat as a podcaster for the first time. Reflecting back on the last three episodes, what's been the most interesting part about producing a podcast? Well, yeah, it's been it's been a really uh, wonderful opportunity, and it's been something that probably was easier or maybe only possible uh, being at this state of transition that I've been in where I've been taking some time away from working full time. Um, it's been a great way to express creativity, sing my teeth into a new pursuit. I, I really enjoy coming up with the ideas for the episodes. There's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes, uh, despite what people might think hearing us, um, just in prepping and, and producing the episode and some support. So it's been great to just learn a new skill and learn what it takes to put a podcast together. And probably most importantly has been just connecting with community. Um, I love hearing from people and hearing what they like, what they don't like, um, you know, about the podcast. And there's been some people who I haven't spoken to for a long time getting in touch. And so that's really energizing. And um, yeah, it's, I think community is what the icky guy is all about in a lot of ways for me. That's what, what it is, right. Is, is how to engage and build and nurture community and try to create something of value and, and um, yeah, be out there and, and trying new things. Yeah. And this is what I love about you, man. It, you have this really big heart for community and connection and to see you share the content that we produced and actually take the reins on our social media account, which had paltry handful of followers and growing it to now 25 followers. So still, still pretty small. <laughs> yeah. I've taken the reins growing it to 25 users. Yeah. I definitely didn't expect to learn about how to use a non-personal Instagram account doing this. So it's been fun to dip my toe into it. Yeah. And I think you've been doing a great job um, showcasing some of the conversations and the, the intent behind what you do is very much how do we create value for people? How do we make connections? And yeah, you know, we had a, a quick conversation before this call about how social media 
commoditize, commoditize this content and how it's, you know, pretty easy to just flick through the next reel and, and onwards and, you know, kind of go on with life. But what we want to create, and I think you've taken the lead on it is just sharing meaningful content, making connections. Um, and for us, just sharing it with a group of people um, who who care about this topic of ikigai and transitions? Yeah, it's been an interesting experience, and not to to derail or go too on a on a tangent, but I was sharing with you off air, like, yeah, the the interest and the novelty, maybe of especially resharing some of the content from the ikigai posts onto my personal account was was really high at the start, and I think you know as each reshare has come out, maybe that interest is is flattened a little bit, and. Um, yeah, you were saying to me just this idea, there's so much content coming people's way, you know, for us, you know, this is, you know, especially for me, you know, I don't like to do anything half-assed. So the idea of, um, creating this with you is something that's bringing me a lot of energy, but it's also something I'm thinking a lot about. So you kind of get that tunnel where you're like, oh yeah, this is great. I can't wait for people to listen. But in reality, there's so much going on, so many distractions people have, and you know, they, they might not really be attuned or ready or in a state where they can listen for an hour to what you're sharing. So it's been interesting to go through that as well. Yeah. Yeah. But I am curious for you, Peter, because you've done two seasons of this on your own. What has it been like for this season? How has it been different with a co-host? Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed doing this with a co-host. Um, my first couple of seasons doing this were mainly interview based and I'm just in the, you know, curious interviewer seat. But now it's it's a really great opportunity to take a little bit more of an active role. And this episode's a great example where we unpack, you know, things about what we've learned and about more about us, which is gonna really take me out of my comfort zone. I'm much, I'm much more comfortable in being in the seat where I have questions lined up, you know, when I can ask the interviewee to unpack a certain concept or idea, but to be on a, a co-hosted side really brings a, a new challenge and, and be more active in actually creating, you know, conversation uh, within the two of us. I would say what has been really great is having you, Mark, specifically here with me because you bring this level of, you know, confidence and, and comfort knowing that I've got, hey, somebody I can bounce an idea off of uh, and and we'll be receptive to it or we'll be sharing, you know, feedback, but in a really supportive way. And when we meld things together and I love that approach of iteratively making things better. Um, that's kind of how I live life. And and this podcast has really been about that. You know, every episode, I think we come up with something interesting, new, and we're going to continue to improve. So that's why, you know, listener feedback is really important, like you mentioned a little bit earlier. So. That's great. And uh, you teed us up nicely to where we can first take the conversation, which was some of the feedback that I had heard from folks was, hey, you know, it's been interesting. They might know me, right? But they don't really know Peter so well. And so they've been wanting to get to know and understand who you are. And we're obviously not going to do your story justice in the amount of time that we have today. But um, just taking a bit of time in this podcast to talk a bit about your background, um, would be really interesting. I know I know you quite well. And, um, you know, for instance, your upbringing in Japan, you're originally born in Japan and moved to Canada. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about kind of the early days? You and I have talked a lot about how those childhood years are formidable in shaping personality and, and life experience. Um, what was it like for you as a child growing up in, in Japan and then coming to Canada? 
Yeah. So talking about transitions, right? Uh, I I moved from Japan to Canada when I was 12 years old, and I lived a pretty fun existence when I when I was younger in Japan. You know, I grew up uh, uh, grew up going to an international school, so I learned English and Japanese at the same time. Uh, I was bilingual. You know, had a lot of friends who were both Japanese and from the States, Canada, Europe. So I, I came up in a really international community. My dad's German, my my mom's Japanese. So I was just really fortunate to be exposed to a lot of different cultures. The big transition for me was when I was 12, my, my parents brought my sister and I into a room and my sister's a, a, about a year and a half younger than I am and said, hey, we're we're moving to Canada. And it wasn't just we're all moving together, but it was my mom, my sister, and I moving to Canada together. So, you know, my parents were splitting, um, and I was uprooting my entire life and existence into a, a completely different country where I had visited a couple of times. I'd gone to summer camp and, you know, get to, gotten to know the, 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 the country a little bit and some, had some connections, but as a 12 year old, you, you're, you'd be surprised at how much, how many roots you build within a community and a country and a culture. And that was a real shock. Uh, moving to Canada, I, I spent a lot of time trying to find my identity again. Who was I? You know, certain things like my sense of humor <laughs> didn't really connect with the people uh, that I was trying to make friends with in, in my school in Canada. Um, you know, th certain things around culture and music were harder to, to adapt to. I, I tried desperately to try to be Canadian as fast as I can and, and actually ditch my Japanese heritage back then because I wanted to fit in. So lots of transition happened during that time period. And I think it's left a pretty strong, firm imprint on, on who I am today. And then, and, and the challenges that I've, you know, since kind of, uh, still reflecting on and, and overcoming, I guess. Oh, yeah. Thank you for for sharing um, that overview. And it sounds like a, a really powerful transition. Um, you know, as someone who's had their parents separated and divorced, that in and of itself, um, I know for me was a, a very founding changing event. Um, so not only did you have your your family structure shift, but moving to Canada, I, I can't uh, imagine what that would be like. Um, you know, a lot of our listeners maybe are from Canada or even the U.S. Um, and, and wouldn't have such a, a culture shock experience in their childhood. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what your if you can remember, what was your 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 thought or perception of what Canada might be like before you came? And, um, you know, yeah. what, what was something that was challenging um, beyond what you've already shared? Well, so. Fortunately, I'd spent a couple of summers in summer camp uh, in in Ontario, uh, so I did have a sense of the type of people, and it was a very warm, supportive community that I went to in 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 the summer camp. So fortunately, I had a really good impression of it. But you know, I think when you still move to another country, when you uproot things and you your parents split, uh, it's 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 just a lot to to handle all at once. So. I think just trying to fit in and rediscover my identity was probably my mission number one, you know, almost like your survival instincts taking over where you just don't want to um, stick out and then try to be more like the people around you. So 
that was something that looking back, I think I tried to do. I don't know if I was actually really good at it because I I was who I was and it was hard to kind of shed that. But I do, do remember this kind of um, pushing away my Japanese culture at the expense of trying to fit in. That That is something I recall really strongly. And it's only until my 30s that I realized, wow, how valuable is this to be connected to my you know, heritage, my, my culture that I grew up in and, and make it part of an important part of my life moving forward. Um, even my partner, you know, May was like, love to really like bring in more of that culture. If we, between the two of us and also to our, uh, our, our family, if we have the opportunity to create a family, it's, you know, we'd love to bring our kids to Japanese events and teach them the language and all that. And, um, yeah, I don't know where I'm, particularly going with this, but it's just, uh, yeah, you know, I think you just try to survive and then find a way to fit in. Was there something that lit a spark or, or shifted for you in your thirties that made you shift your perspective on wanting to learn more about your Japanese culture and, and upbringing? I think, you know, it's so interesting because I'm a firm believer that your body feeds your mind in that that you have certain memories or feelings that just you don't really go away that, that are just part of an imprinted part of your experience you know early on in your childhood and your body keeps the score and you know i think recently in the last couple of years um i've been watching more kind of japanese animation movies there's a beautiful movie called your name that came out in 2016, actually. So it's more than a few years ago. And I was literally bawling my eyes out and I couldn't even really understand why am I feeling all of these emotions? And I think it's, it was my, my kind of body and, you know, myself, my kind of inner self telling me like, there's something really connected here that you haven't had a chance to really appreciate, maybe even grief, you know, as a kid, like, being torn away from your country early on, um, you don't really have the tools to grieve. And I know this isn't about like somebody dying and traditionally what we associate with grief, but you can grieve certain things like a, a stage in life that you move on from a relationship. And that was an important part for me. It was part of my identity was, was taken away. And so, um, I think, yeah, you know, reconnecting with Japanese media, Japanese culture, the language that I don't speak as much anymore um, helped me remember, hey, this is such an important part to me. And uh, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you back on Duolingo. Uh, I'm on there every day <laughs> trying to learn some Spanish over here and uh, could use some friends uh, to help stay motivated. But um, you mentioned earlier that um, at 12, you had established roots, connections, and a life in Japan, and that was a pretty up, uprooting. I was so lucky when I turned 30, actually, I had a kind of this coming-of-age trip where I went for three weeks on my own uh, to Japan. I'd always dreamed of going to Japan. I don't know if it was because I loved Nintendo growing up, or uh, but there's just so many things I admired about the food, the culture, um, the media from afar, and... Um, yeah, it was something about going there on my own that I was really looking forward to heading into a new decade. And you were so kind to help with recommendations and suggestions for that first trip. 
But one of the more memorable experiences was actually going to your hometown in Kobe and, um, you know, trying Kobe beef, for instance, which I know probably a lot of tourists do if they go there. But <laughs> probably more interesting was was actually meeting some of your childhood friends uh, who you connected me with. And randomly, I got to play a soccer game, uh, you know, loving football. I got to play soccer with some of your friends and actually do a, a Bonankai experience, which um I'm going to simplify it and probably not get it completely right, but it's kind of an end of year celebration uh, in around Christmas time and New Year's where um, families, communities come together and celebrate. And um, yeah, I got to be a fish out of water and felt very welcome and connected to a lot of people that you knew younger. So I just thought that that was such a great memorable experience for me. And and it resonated when you said you had a lot of those roots. And I'm just wondering, you know, for you, um, looking back at those times as a kid in Kobe, like what still sticks with you that you notice either in your day-to-day interactions, how you show up in your job, hobbies? Uh, I mean, you mentioned being attached to Japanese media, but is there anything about your personality or or how you how you are in the world that sticks out? Yeah, I think, and it connects to the Ikigai project, this this podcast in, it, in itself, is this sense of, I think the sense of, curiosity and a sense of respect you know, Japanese culture is very respectful and um I think Japanese culture is also very good at like taking ideas from abroad and then making it super efficient or you know making it Japanese and I think what I'm really good at uh is is get, creating space for conversation ideas and connecting the dots and that's why this podcast started in the first place is i was just curious about a whole bunch of different topics um season two we covered mental health season one was kind of a uh potpourri of you know different interviews and talking to people and i think just giving people a space to talk and share their wisdom and then applying that in my life is something that i love to do and i think it's very japanese it's it's very it, it it's about you know respecting the wisdom that's out there um and learning and applying it and and doing it in a gradual way you know kind of just incremental progress kaizen which is like a japanese term that's used in the business world you know is is very similar to that so yeah i i think that's 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 a big part of how i live my work is very much like that i i love iteration i love collaboration with people and um, that's why I think you and I doing this is actually really rewarding. You know, uh, I can be pretty individualistic and kind of maybe, and if you take it in a ne- negative space, like more of a lone wolf, but, um, when you do something with someone, it, there's bound to be new opportunities and maybe a little bit of friction too, which is mm-hmm. helpful because that helps us open new doors. And so I really appreciate you doing this with me. Yeah. Absolutely. The other thing that stood out to me, I I, I was in Japan with Jess uh, during this sabbatical um, set of travel. And, um, you know, one thing I always admire among many things uh, in Japanese culture, but is just this, uh, you know, appreciation for doing things really well. Um, yeah. Maybe focusing on simplicity and, and excellence. And those who know me know that maybe sometimes to a fault um, being that detail oriented or trying to strive to if you're going to do something, do it right and do it well and finish it. Um, and there's just something about the culture there that um, I really identify with, 
even though I, I have no, you know, Japanese background. So, um, yeah, just something that, that stuck out to me. And one, one final thing I did want to ask you, Peter, and I think, you know, not maybe all of our listeners can relate to coming through such a big moving change from Japan to Canada. Maybe some can, I know, you know, Jess, my wife, for instance, moved from the Dominican to Canada. And so, uh, but what I would say is that, you know, taking my own personal story, having grown up in Winnipeg, moved to Toronto, moved to Vancouver, lived in Ireland for a year, back and forth to Toronto and Vancouver twice. Um, I definitely have moved around a lot. And I did want to touch on this idea of home and like what makes home. Um, and I just thought for you, you know, thinking about your own experience, having moved in and lived in different places, like how do you create home and what does that mean for you? Man, that's a, that's such a good question. And I wish I can just throw it back to you, Mark, because I feel like you do this really well. Um, but I, I, what I will say about home is, you know, I think it's a sense of belonging, a sense of safety um, with, with the people you're around and the, the identity that you, you feel connected with. And yeah, I, I think it's really about relationships and people. And, you know, I, I'm happy with a lot of relationships that I've built. And I, and I think I have a lot of room to grow in, in terms of being better at maintaining relationships and creating that sense of connection and community. And I, I, one thing I admire about you, Mark, is, is your, is your sense of, you know, the importance of making sure, Hey, I'm in touch with every, everybody and, and being invested in their lives and being a cheerleader for them. And uh, I, I feel like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot, I'm going to just toss this back to you and, and ask you to share what, what feels like home, what, what makes a place. Yeah. And I probably have a unique spin on it because uh, we've not been home in the traditional sense in our, um, you know, rental here in Vancouver for majority of the last nine months you've been traveling. So I think, you know, Jess and I have talked about this kind of uh, not super deeply, but just in passing through our travels and, a lot of cases you've really hit the nail on the head, which is like home is kind of where you want to make it. And so there are some traditional senses of home that we are missing and just being um, away from Vancouver and some of the habits and the creature comforts that we've appreciated. But, you know, a lot of senses, Jess and I committing to each other, we've created that sense of home together. And so even though we were in all these different places all over, that feeling of homesickness, at least for me and my experience, wasn't really there because I felt like I had her and um, had that connection. Now, obviously, that's not like the full picture, but I think what you're saying around relationships and community rings true. And coming back to Vancouver, um, one of the things her and I talk a lot about, and I know we've talked about it with Diana in the last episode, is it's hard to restart in a new city without that social structure. And that certainly, I think, is one of the key drivers in creating home is building those relationships. Um so yeah, but 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 yeah, it's a combination of relationships for me and then just adding your own unique stamp to where you are living such that like there's familiarity, whether it's pieces of art or certain rituals that you can be doing that make it feel comfortable and safe, as you said. So it's a cool question to ruminate on. And um, yeah, one that we could probably dedicate more time to, but uh, I know you have a unique life experience. So I, I was curious how you saw it. Yeah, right on. And I think what you mentioned there with your commitment with Jess, your partner is really valuable. I think home is a commitment. Home is 
you know, Hey, I'm invested in this place, this, the, the people around me, like even, you know, we covered this in episode one, getting a dog, that's a commitment. And I've learned a lot about that. Um, over the last, you know, six months of, of having our, our adopted dog. So, um, yeah, it, you know, as you as you go through life transitions and important milestones, I think that sense of commitment and responsibility deepens in your life, which is really, really powerful and, and an important way of, you know, kind of just better becoming a better human and part of the community, I guess. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to touch on. Um about this topic is there's this idea of a bit of a double-edged sword when you're very mobile and you're kind of transient and you know some of our listeners might relate to this some might not like i know have some some people in my life who've been in one place their entire life and i think there's some real great positives and benefits to having those deep roots um and there's also benefits and an upside to being mobile yes maybe it's hard because you're kind of always rebuilding and starting new structures but one thing really shined for jess and i between the two of us we've been quite mobile individually and now coming together going to all these different places that we've been we almost always knew somebody in one of the cities or places and that sense of home came to life and just being able to have a sliver of that, whether it was to visit somebody's actual home where we were traveling or it was a meal that we could share together, being able to not just do the typical touristy thing. Um, and so I do think it's it's one real blessing of having been maybe more on the road is that you have family or connections that you can call upon many places in the world, which is pretty special. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of traveling, I know you had some exciting adventures of late, and I'd love to give the listeners a sense of what what you saw and experienced in your trip to South America and specifically um, Patagonia. So do you want to give us like a, the Coles notes of, of how that experience was and we can we can unpack it? Yeah. So when we started doing this um, collaboration together for the Ikigai project, it was probably around the end of January. and um, we had a really tight plan from the time I, you know, left my my former company to the time that we got married. So basically from August to December, it was fully locked and loaded. We had all this amazing travel, some local, as you've heard, and some international. Then coming back in January, we didn't have a plan. And one of the things that we might talk about later as we go deeper on like how to prepare for a sabbatical or extended time is, you know, planning travel is a lot of work. And um, we just already were at the end of our rope doing that four months um, leading up to the wedding, never mind planning the wedding. We needed to come back and catch our breath in January. And, and another thing to consider when you're doing sabbatical is like, do you, I have a friend who's, you know, a couple of friends who've done a similar thing, but longer, and they, you know, actually gave up their roots temporarily and so they had no real home quote quote back in canada to come back to and that was a decision that they made and certainly a smart one financially um in our case we decided to keep paying rent on the place that we're in and so there was a big financial cost to take in but it meant that we had a place to kind of um almost if you're a formula one watcher i've used this analogy almost like have a pit stop where you can go and change your wheels uh, recalibrate, take in your creature comfort, sleep in your own bed, get your groceries, and then head out for another adventure. And we had that spattered throughout the fall as well. But in January, it was like an extended period of time. Um, and we weren't really sure what to do. But uh, to, to just get to the point of your question, we had a good friend of ours, um, Kim, uh, 
who was at our wedding just talk about how she was planning on going to Patagonia. And um, that was a place that's always been on Jess and I's bucket list, being nature enthusiasts and loving to hike. And yeah, so we didn't need much convincing, but we kind of just like, we, we weren't ready to commit in January because we had to just take that downtime for us to re-energize and get excited about travel again, to be honest. But uh, probably by mid-February or so, um, we were ready to to plan another run. And so we we did uh, this epic trip for um, uh, about just over about three weeks or so to Argentina and to Chile with the Patagonia area being the main crux of, of our experience. And then tacking onto that, we did a bunch of, of, of smaller trips um, randomly. Uh, we went back to the Dominica, we went to Las Vegas, we went for a friend's wedding in San Francisco and so on. And so it's been a wonderful period and, and we're excited to be back, but I'll, I'll pause there and see what you're thinking. I'm curious. So, you know, I, I love the idea of pit stop so that you can kind of take catch a breath and and regroup and and figure out what you want to do next. How did this round of travel differ from the first round of travel? And maybe just remind the listeners where you went on round one too. Just yeah. So round one, we um we did some local travel in Canada. I know you love that. And then we uh <laughs> we went international. We went to Korea, Japan, uh, New Zealand, and got married in the Dominican. And then it had a a more traditional quote unquote honeymoon experience in Costa Rica. So that was kind of round one. I think the way that this round differed was intentionality. Um, we hadn't like, I hadn't taken my foot off the gas pedal from when I gave notice and it probably speaks to kind of my personality, but when I ended and, and, and this ties into kind of transitioning and, and into a sabbatical, but it was important for me to really want to, end on a high note as best as I could. And, um, you know, I cared about the relationships and the time that I had at Slack and I wanted to, um, showcase that care, even though I had given my, my notice, um, and, and strongly what that meant was like, it was like pretty gung ho right to the end of the last day. I didn't really have like a victory lap or any kind of time where I, I could have a come down. And then we went right into it. So in January, like I had also visualized and, uh, fantasized about, wow, what it would be like if I wasn't working, but not just traveling, being at home and like have all of the regular creature comforts and amenities of home and like my community in Vancouver, but not be working eight hours a day or whatever it might be. And I dreamed about how I might use that time. Um, and so I think what was different about the second round was like, we didn't start planning it for like four weeks. We needed some time just to come down. And then we were more intentional about what we wanted to do. And then um, we were, I really came into the the Patagonia trip with intention of observing and soaking it in and being grateful. Like I had caught up with some friends in January and some of them like have a little bit more commitments than we do in this particular time of life. And they were like shaking me proverbially. They're like, you got to go back out and do more travel, like do it while you can. And um, so I think this idea of, of going while we have have the opportunity really rang out and um being being very present because I felt like we were in the first round, but there was so much coming our way. This time, like we could go in and, and really soak in the experience. And I think Jess and I did a good job on the second round. Yeah. And so I know you guys did a lot of hiking um and lots of time to just explore and absorb nature, um, be with your partner, of course, and other travelers, but also with your with yourself. And I'm just curious, 
if there were any aha moments or insights that you gleaned from your your travels um this round you know especially through more of like that um yeah like being in nature and and, and traveling and hiking and all that yeah so i think a couple of things i'd say on patagonia that were probably like maybe misconceptions in my head i don't know where they came from but i thought of like patagonia being like so uh, adventurous, I guess, especially growing up like, wow, this far off place and, and very different. Um, and so I think one thing that stood out was like how, I don't know what a word I could use, maybe developed, but like how accessible it actually was to go out there and travel and, and, and do hiking. It wasn't, you know, so quote unquote, like adventurous, like there was well, well structured systems in place. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, we had a huge advantage in that Jess is fully fluent in Spanish. And that's like, obviously you can get around speaking English, but uh, it, it, it's it's an accelerator for having a better experience and getting more out of it. Um, and I obviously am like at a beginner level for Spanish in my way. So those were a couple of things that, that stood out. But for us, we, we did um, some hiking in around El Chaten on the Argentinian side, El Calafate. And then we did a, a kind of famous trek called the W Trek. And they call it that because it looks like a W from above. And that was a really great test for Jess and I, because prior to that, we love hiking, but we're kind of newer on our journey as a couple to do overnight backpacking trips. We had done one last summer together in Joffrey Lakes, and I'm hoping to to build on that with her this summer. Um, and for those that are listening, like backpacking with all of your gear on your back is a lot different than car camping. Um, and then it's a lot harder physically to hike because you have way more weight on your shoulders. And so, um, what was great about the W track is you could do it that way, but you could also, uh, hike with less gear because there's campsites that you can rent tets at that they already have set up for you. And there's like really nice food that you can, um, eat in like little, whatever restaurants, um, tangential though, bring it back to what I learned. I think for us, we, we continued on our road to getting to know each other better. And some of that road was bumpy, right? Like, I think you look back at any travel experience, probably for people who've gone with friends or their loved ones, like it's not always smooth sailing. And I think generally the, the positives were, were, you know, way outweighing uh, any challenges, but it just built more resilience for her and I. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday. We went for a hike and I was asking her some of the questions uh, that I thought we might cover today. And we were talking about just how when you do get into a conflict, like each time is a learning opportunity to get to know that person better, both as the person who might be triggering something and like ways that they could behave and learn from that experience, but also as someone who is understanding that other side trying to calibrate how you show up in conversations or how you might behave to just understanding somebody better so that you can connect with them and and maybe not push their buttons or or trigger certain situations and so yeah we come back to life now and i just feel like you know we're not obviously in a high stress situation in this moment but life at home does feel infinitely smooth and like pretty uh, yeah, just pretty chill. Cause you just, you go through these experiences and, um, it builds that resilience and that connection. So that's something that stood out and it was fun. Cause like that W track was four days of, of hiking, um, and four nights of overnighting. So by the end of it, we had done like 70 kilometers and a, a fair amount of elevation gain as well. And there's all sorts of conditions weather-wise we endured. Um, the other thing for me on a personal note, I'll share, and I know I've been kind of talking your ear off is 
at the end, we we hiked the last part of the W. We hiked to go see this glacier. And I think it was Gray Glacier. And we got about halfway and we were told, like, basically the conditions weren't ideal for hiking that day. The, the wind gusts were going up to over 100 kilometers an hour, which is wow. really, really intense. And on the way there, you're hiking into the wind. And on the way back, the wind's with you, which is kind of ideal. But we got halfway to a viewpoint where we could see the glacier, but only about halfway of the hiking duration for that day. And the conditions were really, really intense. And our ferry and where we were going to go home was back at the original starting point of the trail for that day. So we had no incentive to like finish the hike other than maybe a completionist checking the box and doing all the W and then also probably an epic view of a glacier. And where I'm going with this was um, we made the decision collectively as a couple to turn back halfway. But I think individually it was a lot harder for me than Jess to not finish. Um, You know, as someone who likes to start, what he finishes it was um it was it was a challenge to kind of like yeah to to stop basically um and you know knowing that our ferry wasn't coming till that evening we would have all this time to kill back at the at the at the pickup point um which we ended up doing uh so yeah it was kind of just like a lesson of like sometimes it's okay to quit um and just like leaning into that that part of of an area which is not as comfortable for me yeah. Wow, Peter, that was a lot. And thank you, uh, listeners, as well. I know I was going there for a while. No, there's a lot of like nuggets of wisdom there that I think we can we can further unpack. But the one thing I think that I took away just as a note here is that your travels with Jess has deepened your relationship. And actually, in the same way that your hiking stamina probably increased, your relationship stamina has probably increased too by having that shared understanding. And, uh, you know, May and I uh, have been reading this book called The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work. And one of them, one of the kind of few nuggets we took away is couples who make it, i.e., you know, continue to stay together for years and years, are ones that are able to kind of diffuse a tense situation and say something kind of funny or, you know, just like something that, yeah, helps uh, each other break out of that triggered situation or that tense moment and then come back together later on. And I feel like what you guys were doing were like finding ways to do that, kind of building up that relationship, understanding and connection and safety in a way, I guess, just continue to spend quality time together. So that's something I really admire you guys being really intentional about and travel kind of reinforcing that so yeah and i I just want to touch on that quickly one thing that um is probably more unique to me is just given my upbringing and going through you know my family situations etc like i think i kind of shared in in a way earlier episode when we first chatted on nikki guy in 2019 like i'm more um it's easier for me to bottle emotions and like uh to not address them and i think one of the things i've really learned from jess and admire about her is she's very well connected to her emotional sense of being. And the positive thing that has come from that is like, I think emotions, as you said, have a memory and like your body has a memory. And so if you're not addressing them and finding outlets for sharing that comes out in mysterious ways. And um, yeah, we're reading the Atlas of the heart by Brene Brown right now. And it's been like a really great book for us to add more clarity to different emotions and like how anger is usually like a surface level emotion that 
is is underneath could be a litany of of real challenges. And so where I'm going with this is I think during these experiences, I've gotten better at not just having my final output be maybe a frustration or impatience or an anger outburst, but sharing my emotions more regularly, whether it's something to do with Jess and I or something that somebody's done that's hurt me or something. Um, and yeah, we were just talking about that yesterday. I was like, I feel like I'm on the path to being better at understanding what emotion I'm feeling and, and ex- expressing it versus knowing who, the, where the heck it goes. And then it comes out maybe in a, in a way that I, I don't always appreciate. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a, an episode Mark that we can, <laughs> we can do. Yeah. yeah. Cause that, that's some, a challenge I, I deal with as well, where I tend to bottle up my emotions comes out in a way that is totally tangential and a, or it will come out in some way, you know, whether it's like a frustration or a gripe or whatever, but it, the better you can process that and then be with it, um, the more productive that, you know, conversation can, can be with that person. So appreciate. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's, it's, it's both sides. Like to be clear, I can give you another specific example on our way back from the Dominican. We were in the airport waiting and my dad sent a really touching email about how he was surprised and recognized for his alumni service at the University of Manitoba. And anyways, was, they did a surprise at a dinner and he had a YouTube video and I saw the video and it like got me teary eyed with, with, I was just so proud of him. And I know him, how many years he's dedicated his service. And, um, so it's not just like the anger and upset emotions. It's also like leaning into joy and a happiness more, uh, which I don't think I have been historically that good at either is celebrating. And so, yeah, it's been kind of, um, a journey that I've been on emotionally just to connect to all types of emotions in real time. Yeah. Well, I think the last two minutes just now, in addition to this whole conversation, it's what the guy project is all about is in many ways, I think, uh, the the two of us sharing these experiences and, and learning from them, growing from them is what we'd love to to share with you all. So if that at all resonated with you, dear listener, <laughs> please let us know, because uh, I think if we can continue to grow through this process as a uh, as a community, that's that's what matters uh, most to us. And I know for Mark as well. Um, Mark, I, I just want to keep on rolling with this, uh, the idea of you know, you're, you're sabbatical and it's, uh, it's been nine months, right? Yes. Okay. More or less. Yeah. Might even be 10. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, so I know you are starting to think about as you, as you end this, you know, second part of your travels and starting to think about, okay, what does my life look like afterwards? Um, what do you, what's on your mind right now? Like what, what are you taking away from this sabbatical that you think you'll carry into your next transition or next phase? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I think like right now I'm at an interesting point where we're like back, we got some summer plans for some travel here or there, but for all intents and purposes, like we've gotten out of our system, the more big adventures for now. Um, I think we've really valued this time. Um, it was, you know, it wasn't always smooth sailing. Uh, in January, I can, uh, and I asked Jess if I could share this before we were recording today, but um, she really struggled with being home, but not having something to achieve or not having something to plan and just living in being at home, 
without a job. Right. And I think for me, whether it was having done this already once before, um, but also just like mentally preparing for it for a long time and thinking about with almost a fantasizing mind, but what I wanted to use that time with, um, it really was a struggle for her. And that, you know, made me sad because I wanted her to get the most out of the time that, that we could. And so where I'm going with this is like the, uh, I think it was this idea of like wanting to achieve and to be productive. And so as we spent more time just unpacking that and and teasing that out, like now I see her and she's just thriving and we're having um, a really good experience with not working right now. And um, I just wanted to call that out because I think people think about like the sabbatical or taking time away and they just probably see the positives, but it is sometimes a, a bumpy road and you go through different experiences. And um, yeah, so I think that's one thing I wanted to share about what's on my mind in this moment. Uh, and I'm just like super proud to see her transformation and, and see her thriving. And um, the other thing that, that for me has just been interesting is like, I feel like if I were a camera, my like aperture of my lens is wider and I'm just more, aware of my sensory experience right now I'm more observant I'm 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 more clear of time as a currency like we always think about money as a currency but like time is valuable and it's precious it's one thing universally that we all like have in a finite amount and what's weird is having more time has actually made me recognize its impermanence even more and how precious it is if that makes sense it's almost um been the opposite effect. I think when you're working, it's easy to just have your blinders on and have your head down and be really focused and just like try to get through your day or your week. And um, next thing you know, it's like years have gone by or months have gone by. Whereas like now I'm like looking at myself in the mirror and being like, whoa, like those are wrinkles I don't remember. Like old person, old man, old woman time is is running its toll, right? And so, um, yeah, I think just being more observant and, you know, I was talking to you about this, like even relationships, which is something I'm, you know, more aware of right now, if we were to go back to episode two of my balance wheel, it's surprisingly how surprising me how um, surface level some of my relationships are. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. Um, because people are busy. I've been, you know, I, I try to be quite busy right now with a bunch of hobbies and pursuits, but it's been surprising. Um, just to to sometimes you know send a text message and it just kind of fades into the atmosphere and you're like oh that's surprising um so i think just be more aware of some of those things and um jess and i talk a lot about how, how we try to show up in our digital selves and try to be thoughtful and and responsive to people uh but yeah i think just being more aware of some of those um the, those those trends from a relationship standpoint has been an observation yeah for sure uh so there's a lot of good stuff in there that I would probably have five more questions to try to get to the more. <laughs> yeah, you're probably tired of me talking uh, as well. But but I mean, uh, like for you, you know, when you think about kind of because you're working right now, right? So you think about working, um, you think about hearing some of my experiences with relationships and so on, like what's coming, what's standing out to you and your own experience? Yeah, I think the time piece really resonates for me. You know, when you're working and you, you have you know a family uh dog kids whatever your situation might look like time can really fly very very quickly and if you're not paying attention um it makes it yeah it, your time is a, is a currency that will run out really quickly so 
it's just really important that we find ways to bring ourselves back into the present moment. And I'm, I'm not saying I, I, I know how to do this, but I, I do know ways that have worked with for me in the past, which is going back, you know, taking the time to journal, taking the time to, you know, be, be mindful, you know, whether that's meditation or some quiet space or even just like daily life things like going on a walk and, and, you know, being paying attention to what's around you. Um, I'd love to do more of that and just be more present in that moment and, and recognize. And then going back to what we were saying earlier about being present with your body and, and what it's trying to tell you, um, creating the space for that to happen. I find it really difficult nowadays because we have everything around us, like a, like our podcast is just a click away and you can <laughs> listen to that, uh, or, you know, millions of other pieces of content, music. And so how I'm thinking about how can I be more intentional with my time? How can I be more present? Um, yeah, those are things that come to me from, from, from your thoughts. Yeah. And I, I find myself coming back to, um, one question I love to chat about in like a, you know, uh, a dinner party context is like, what was like one of your most memorable classes you had in university um, or, or during that time period of your life? And for me, it was death and future concepts. And uh, it was this idea, like every class, we just looked at different cultures, different religions and how they grieved and how they went through the ritual of, of death, um, you know, because people, uh, that's a universal truth. And um, one of the activities we actually had to do was, uh, it might sound morbid to some of our listeners, but it was a really interesting thought exercise where we had to write our own obituary. So imagine that you had passed away and you're in the writer's chair to write out like, how you would be remembered in a newspaper. And, um, you know, especially being a university student where you're not thinking at all about that part of life. It was an eye-opening exercise to kind of like put pen to paper and think about that. And I still kind of from now and then am reminded of, of that exercise. And yeah, certainly when I pass away, I don't, I, I want, I, you know, I try, I would like to try to, to, to have friendships or relationships in my life that, are with me enduring until I'm, I'm, I'm an older person. And so I think like, for me, it's been something I've been talking a lot with some friends. It's like, you know, it seems like we were talking about with Diana on the last episode. It's like you enter your thirties or you have a family and suddenly friends really drop in priority for some people, not everybody. And yeah, I think that's a shame because, you know, I know I was talking to a friend the other day and, and I know of like people who are at a grandparent's age and they are lonely and they have siblings or they have grandchildren yet they just don't have those, those deep connections to people. And, um, that's gotta be really tough to go through. So a bit of a weird tangent, but just something that I've been thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been riffing on a few different topics over the last hour. And, uh, I think we can start looking ahead here. Uh, I, I find it really great to just catch up and hear what you've been up to. And I'm, I hope sharing a bit above about myself has helped listeners better understand me because we have a convergence of communities coming together, my, my communities and, and, and your communities. And so this was really an intention for us to, to share more. And, and if you like this, um, hopefully you'll give us some feedback and, and tell us how to, to do it you know, what else can we do? Uh, all, all that kind of stuff. So, but before we go, I do want to ask, um, what are you looking forward to for the rest of the season? So we've made this commitment to work on the season together and we've 
talked about transitions. Like what, what are you thinking would be a great outcome? Um, I mean, I think, you know, offline we've riffed on some pretty fun ideas and it, it all is pending on who, you know, is, is able to join us in, in the coming weeks as we record more, but I'm excited to just keep exploring this idea of transition because I think there's a lot of different paradigms you can look at it, whether it's like, you know, you know, my background, I love running marathons, for instance. So like whether it's performance and like fitness and wellness based and like, how do you kind of get to that point? Or it's like, we just talked about mortality and thinking about aging and what does that look like? And who knows what else that we could, we could, we could look at. Um, I, I think there's just a lot of different ways we can kind of take this conversation. And my hope is that we can kind of just do that, keep it conversational and um, keep learning along the way. Uh, cause I, I know I've been getting a lot personally from, from hearing from you and from, from our guests and, you know, reflecting, um, how about you? What, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, I think along the same lines, uh, we're gonna, we have a list of guests that we're really interested in bringing in, um, covering a variety of topics, uh, from, you know, uh, the modern, uh, being a modern elder, you know, inviting some of our folks in our community who uh, have gone through many life transitions and hearing from their experience. Uh, talking about topic of health and nutrition, I think we're both really interested in that. Um, I think transitions is just such an interesting topic and one that we don't really pay attention to. Like As we were talking earlier in this episode, I had a bit of an aha moment when I was sharing about my childhood where I never had a chance to plan out my transition and abrupt transitions can be pretty traumatic. Um, and the more we educate ourselves on the, the transition process, what are the kind of steps or phases that people can go through, the better we will be able to acknowledge that and, in, and even enjoy that process of knowing that you are in transition. Um, Cause that, can be scary if you don't know what's going on and you feel out of control. Um, so I think it's just kind of building on this topic of transitions, man. And, 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 and in different ways that hopefully will be useful for, for listeners. Just to build on that. I actually was on LinkedIn and, um, uh, a former classmate of mine and friend, David Ogle, who has dose coaching. He, he does a, a regular blog post and he had wrote about the importance of closure. Mm. And just to your, your point with transitions, like how are you actually going through a ritual of closure in some capacity so that your mind has some way of like seeing that as a beginning and an end. And I do think like we've been mindful of that, maybe not intentionally, just in how we've used this time and travel and like how you can have certain trips or certain experiences be a milestone or a bit of a, a, a turning point. Um, and he was talking about it even in context of work, like how you are you as a leader facilitating closure on a project or um, a challenging time in the company or what have you so that your team can can get ready for the next transition or the next thing. So it's just interesting to hear you talk about it that way. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I, I was also listening to a podcast on the Tim Ferriss show with Derek Sivers. Um, and, you know, he, Derek Sivers, really high level, he, he made his fortune selling his company, um, and has become kind of this like, uh, minimalist guy who loves to just share interesting insights and wisdom. And, and anyways, he's worth a, a follow, but, um, he, he made a really interesting point about the word 
that technology companies often use called release. Like when you release a product or release an update, it, there's really something nice about this idea of just putting it out in the world. You're releasing yourself, your bands release albums, you know, and it's just kind of this sense of closure that, hey, it's out there, it's out of my hands um, and it's in the world. And I, I think that's how we should be thinking about is like, yeah, you know, projects have an end, release it in the world um, and then plan it, plan it out as best as you can too, because you don't want to kind of just let it wither away either. You want to come at it with some intentionality. So just, just adding on to, yeah, what we're talking about. Yeah. And speaking of things having an end, I think this conversation, we can put a pin in it. Uh, it's been great to connect and just uh, catch our breath as we're continuing to learn with each other, Peter, and navigate this season on transition. So thank you so much for the great conversation and questions. Likewise. Yeah. And listeners, please send us some feedback, engage with us on uh, on the social media platforms out there. We'd love to hear from you. And so that's really how we get better um, at this. So yeah, appreciate you listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Special thank you to Hugh for the theme music. You can check them out at hearhue.bandcamp.com. If you're interested in learning more about the Ikigai Project, you can check out the blog at ikigai.blog. And if you found this content useful, please subscribe or tell a friend or family member about this podcast. I'll see you next week for another episode of the Ikigai Project. Take good care for now, everyone. <laughs>